Good morning. We are thankful for each one who's here with us this morning. Our lesson does come from Isaiah chapter 1 as we were looking at uh, this topic this morning of a sin-sick nation. And I want to show this morning as you look at chapter 1 the folly of rebellion and the hope of repentance as you find it in this chapter because there is much said in these 20 verses, or, or more than 20 verses, I should say, of Isaiah. And we think about uh, so many similarities that we still see uh, among us today. And we think about that phrase, the sin-sick nation. We, we sometimes, because we live in the U.S., and we know our situation the best because we live here, many times we apply this to us because we see the wickedness around us. But make no mistake, there are more than one sin-sick nation in the world today. There are multiple nations around the world that are doing all kinds of things. And no doubt, even though while we ourselves are not maybe at times pleased with our own nation, friends, there are others around us that remind us that we are not the only ones who have issues. And when I say that, I don't mean to condone or to say that we should be relieved that we live in the nation we live in, because we certainly do have things which we need to deal with ourselves. But as you find here in Isaiah chapter 1, a vision of Isaiah, as chapter 1 verse 1 says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Uzzah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this is a vision of Isaiah given to him by God. So he's going to be repeating what what things he had been given to him by God. When we say a vision, we mean that he is basically, he is speaking the words that God had given him to speak. He is revealing what he has seen. And so we want to uh, get into this this morning uh, first by looking at the uh, sin-sick nation and hypocritical worship. We first want to begin by looking at verses 2 and following. And this morning, you'll have to open your Bibles and follow along with me. If you look at verses 2 through 9, we find here the sins of the nation. You look at verse 2, we find here, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. I have nursed and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. We find that phrase there, children. He's nourished and brought up children. As he has nourished and brought along those who are following him and should have been following him. But now, he says in verse 2, they had rebelled against him. They had rebelled against him. Sometimes when our children misbehave, our grandchildren misbehave, you may feel like they are rebelling against us, and sometimes maybe they are. But what we try to do, we try to show them the way to come back and do what is good and pleasing, not just to us, but to God. And he says here in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth which we understand to mean listen and basically to pay attention to his words. He says, for the Lord has spoken, again, a reminder who is speaking. He's repeating what the Lord had spoken with and what the Lord had revealed to him to repeat here. He says, I have nursed and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. And so we see right away things are, we find here God has some problems with these individuals. Going back to verse 1, this is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so he has some things he has to say. 
You think about that for a moment. Whenever God is, as I like to say, sometimes fired up and has something to say, it may not turn out very well for those who are listening. It will turn out well for those who are willing to come back to him, but for the rebellious and for the stubborn, they're going to have a very bad day and will continue to have bad days until they come back to God. Looking next, uh, we're looking here at verse 2, we find that he refers to them as his children. Now, the Hebrew word used here indicates that this is a breach of a relationship. That is, they are no longer those who are doing what is good and pleasing in his sight. He has brought up children, but they have rebelled against him. Looking next at verse 3, he says here, the ox, and the, and the, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider while the ox and donkey are pictures being intelligent enough to know where to go for their needs, here the people do not. Thus the ox and the donkey have more sense than them. They know where to go to get what they need in this life. And he says the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah here, he says they don't even know that. He says that Israel does not know, my people do not consider they have lost their way completely. Friends, when animals or pictures being more intelligent than you, there is a major problem. And that's what we find here in verse 3. They no longer know where they should be going. They have forgotten who they are to be serving. And we find in verse 4, and uh, from verse 4 down through verse 8, he says here, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, he says here in verse 4. Children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. He says, I notice this, why should you be stricken again? You'll revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. You notice that question he asked? Why should you be stricken again? He says here, you will revolt more and more, saying it's not going to do any good. I've heard people say things sometimes, and maybe we ourselves find ourselves saying these similar things. Why should I punish you or do this to you again? Because you're just going to do whatever you want. That's what God is saying here, isn't he? He says, you, revolt, you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. He means everything within them is totally against him. He says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, verse 6, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have, they have not been closed or bound up or sued with ointment. He, this is a picture of sin. He uses here the idea of wounds and things that have been taken care of. Thus, their sins have not been taken care of. And this description shows you how God feels about sin he says what? He says their wounds, their bruises, their putrefying sores. I don't want to see those types of things. And he says they have not been closed or bound up or sued with ointment. Means you're just, you've left them wide open. What happens if you leave sores and things such as this? If you leave them alone, they'll pay attention to them. They get worse. When a child comes in with a skinned knee, we jokingly say sometimes, at least as dads, we might say, rub some dirt on it, it'll be fine. But that's not really the truth. We clean it. We applied some type of 
ointment and we put a bandage on it, right, before we send them back out. Because if not, it can get worse and get infected and things turn south pretty quickly. And we find here in verse 6, they haven't touched these these things, these sins, and their picture is getting worse. They're not closed or bound up or sued with ointment. In verse 7, it says, Your country, your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a, gra- in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. And so everything around them is pictured as being destroyed and falling apart. Because remember this point, we'll come back to it later. Sin ruins everything. Sin ruins everything. If you find in your fridge a piece of rotten food, you want it touching anything else? No, you want to remove it and make sure it's not touching anything else, right? Because sometimes those things get away from us and you remove whatever it is that may have expired. You clean up what something needs to be cleaned up and make sure it doesn't touch anything else because it can spread and affect other things around it. Sin is the same thing. He goes from picturing them in verse 6 as individuals with bruises and sores and all types of things to verse 7 as now an entire country is pictured as what? As desolate, burned with fire in cities. Strangers devour your land in your presence. This means you can't even stop those who are coming in and harassing you. Verse 8, he references here a group that's left. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, as one group that is left and spared by God. We refer to that group many times as a remnant. Look at verse 9 next. If it weren't for God, we find that if it weren't for God living a remnant, there would have been nothing left for them. He says, unless Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. What would have happened to them? God wiped them off. He's saying it wasn't for God sparing this small remnant. that You'd be just like them. There'd be nothing left. Which helps us understand that God is lenient. God is merciful. But we have to also realize God still wants them to repent. Regardless of the remnant being left behind, those stores were still open. The country was still falling apart. Judah and Jerusalem still needed to change. Now let's notice here, we're moving now more into the corruption and the hypocritical or false worship which they were involved in. They attempted, as we find in verse 10 and following, to hide their corruption. But notice how they try to do so. Look at verse 10 in Isaiah 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This is how he refers to them now, as wicked people. Sodom and Gomorrah do not have a good reputation, right? Most people, even those who are not overly familiar with the Bible, we mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, they probably know what you're talking about. <coughs> oh yeah, those two cities are so bad, God just literally burned them to the ground, left nothing behind. Exactly. These are wicked people being pictured here. Judah and Jerusalem, their names are now being used here in reference only as Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 10. In verse 11, it says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? What's he talking about now? 
He's talking about worship. Because sacrifices belonged in a time to offer up things to God as payment for, as uh, penitence for your, for your sin. Talking about Old Testament law, remember. And also was involved in worship, right? He says, to what purpose is a multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord, he says, he says here, <clears throat> I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fat of fed, of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. All of a sudden, what happens? Their sacrifices, they don't matter anymore. He's saying this, this doesn't work. What you're doing isn't working is what he's saying in verse 11. Verse 12, it says, when you come to appear before me, that is, he's talking about now a direct reference to worship. Who has required us from your hand to temple my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. So those things which were common to worship. Now he says, I'm sick of it, not because of what because of what they are, but because who is doing it? Uh, who who is doing it? The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. He says, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts. And notice, he says, your. Because he's talking about what they are doing. Specifically, your, he says there in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. There in verse 14. Your assemblies, he says, I hate them. Why? Because sin, as we find that term also used in the Old Testament, sin was in the camp. Their cities were besieged. Their, their lives were full of sin. And now he says in verse 14 that he hates all their sacred assemblies. Looking at verse, uh, looking next at verse 14, uh, continue on here, verses 14 and 15. We see here, he says, uh, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not hear your hands are full of blood. So empty worship is what's happening here, right? They're not worthy to worship God because of their sin, and they ignore what they ought to be doing. And this is still a problem today. Acting as worshipers is not what God wants. He doesn't want actors. He wants those who are committed to him. Vain, empty, hypocritical worship cannot hide the sins of a nation or of a single individual. We look at verses 14 and 15, we find that when we refuse to turn from sin, everything you offer to God becomes empty, and nothing matters if you are not right in the sight of God. Verses 14 and 15. He mentions there in verse 15 that he's not even going to listen to their prayers anymore. doesn't mean he doesn't hear them, but he's not paying them any attention. And why is that? Because they're not paying him any attention. When we say, talk about sometimes we don't want to be those who are guilty of just going through the motions, that's what they were doing. They were going through the motions and committing sin in their person, in their lives, and as a nation, as a whole group of people, they weren't changing anything. So when they came to worship, it was just the same old thing, second verse, and they weren't doing anything sincerely. That's when you find in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, a reference to prayer, he says, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, he says, I will not hear. And then he reminds them why. Not because God is unloving, 
because they are uncaring and unconcerned about him and their life is full of sin. He says in verse 15, your hands are full of blood, a reference to sin. He's not going to listen to them. When we talk about how God doesn't hear the, the, the prayers of sinners, this is what we're referencing here. There is no response. It's all just, we say, you ever hear the phrase sometimes, it's white noise. You hear something, you don't really understand what's going on. That's what their prayers have become. Just white noise. There was no sincerity. There was no turning from their sin. There was no true worship going on because they had not changed anything in their lives. Everything was just formal actions and words and just white noise. And God says in verse 15, he says, even though you make many prayers, he says, I will not hear. Now, none of that in verse, verse 15 sounds any good. But to me, that the phrase, I will hide my eyes from you is a scary thought. God's not even looking at them anymore. He's not watching them. He's not listening to their prayers because they are they have hands full of blood, verse 15. He was weary of bearing their assemblies, enduring or tolerating them, and God desires worship that is not a sham. God despises worship that is false, that is phony. Was he truly desire? He desires Reformation, lamentation, and redemption. Reformation meaning change, lamenting over their sin. We talk about sometimes godly sorrow, and then what will happen? Redemption. Because you can't change your life without changing and turning from sin. Reformation, lamentation, and redemption. Looking next at verses 16 and following, as we look at this idea of reformation of life, Looking at verse 16, notice what he says here. Wash your hands, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. In all reality, the latter part of verse 16 is all about chapter 1, isn't it? Cease to do evil. Stop doing it. You ever tell your kids or grandkids, just knock it off. Stop what you're doing right now. That's what God has done to them. Knock it off. Cease to do evil. Stop doing those things. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. That's talking about repentance and coming back to him. That reference there, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, is purification. Coming back to God. Coming back because they weren't with God at this point. Think about that for a second. They weren't with God at this point. What were they still doing? Offering up worship to God, weren't they? They were still having their sacred assemblies. God just hated them. They were still offering up these sacrifices to God, but God still loathed them, which tells us that we can have assemblies and worship services and still be displeasing to God. We can be here today and still have a problem with sin. You look at Isaiah's time, we still find the same cure for it, don't we? See, the problem for mankind has always been the same. It's been sin, but the cure has always been the same as well. Repentance and obedience to God. 
And that's what we find here in verse 16. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. But away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. You notice it's about being pleasing to God. Who cares what everybody else thinks? Before my eyes. Who cares what everybody else? Who cares what everybody else is doing? Before my eyes cease to do evil. So put away sin. Stop doing it. In verse 17, remove sin and install righteousness. Look at verse 17. Learn to do good. Because all of a sudden they needed some help there. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Now that is not a complete list of seeking to do, to do good and righteousness, but we get the idea, don't we? Remove sin and install such things as these in your life. It's not enough just to remove sin. We have to make godly living a part of who we are. When you take out a, a blown up piece of equipment from a car, you have to replace it with something, don't you? If you pull out the engine because it, it's no good, you can't go anywhere until you put a new one in. Our lives will not get better just by removing the sin. We have to install righteous living. And that's what we find in verse 18. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. In verse 18, again, another call to come back to God. He says in verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they, are, they shall be as white as snow. Though, though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Snow and wool are known to be white when they are pure and clean, right? And sin is always viewed as the complete opposite. Sin as scarlet in verse 18. Red like crimson, but we are to be white as snow. We shall be as wool, he says in verse 18. But only when we do what? When we come together to God and we reason and we determine we need to do, be those who obey him. We don't reason with God in the sense we say, well, God, this is what I want to do. So this is what I'm, I'm going to do this and this and this. I'll stop doing these few things, but I'm going to keep doing this. That's not what he's talking about. I heard a lady tell me one time, well, I believe you know, before your life begins, you be able to decide what you can handle with God. You sit down, you can have a conversation with God, you can decide what you can handle. Don't see that anywhere in the Bible. God never had a conversation with Adam and Eve when he created them. Okay, what can you handle in your life before we just get this started? No, it was, you're here, it's time to decide what you're going to do. We find here in chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 18, we reason together and find that what? God's way is the best way. Not only is it the right way, it's the best way. Look next with me at verses 19 and 20. He says here, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. That's a reference to blessings, right? The condition those if you're willing and obedient. Verse 20, But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There are two choices in those verses. Only two. Not going part way, not a gray area where I think, well, this is okay. Or, you know, you don't find Isaiah saying, well, don't you believe? No, he doesn't say that. 
He makes it very clear in verses 19 and 20. He reminds us also that it's the Lord who is speaking here. He says, if you are willing, that is, you decide to do it, no one makes you. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So if you are willing to come back and obey God, you will be blessed, verse 19. Verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel, that's how God looks at those who refuse to follow him. They're in rebellion. People today, and I know I'm not the only one here who's talked to people who are not doing as they should be doing, not following God, those types of things. And we, maybe we find ourselves using the word, well, it's not good to be rebelling to God. Well, I'm not rebelling. What do we think unfaithfulness is? It's rebellion. God doesn't say, well, I know you're having a tough time. and we're talk- I'm not talking about health issues and things like that. If people say, well, I'm having a tough time because you're stressed about things, they just stop coming. He says in verse, verse 20, if you refuse and rebel, that's how God looks at it, right? Either obedience or refusal or rebellion. One brings blessings. One brings quite the opposite. Look at verse 20. If you refuse and rebel, if you are unfaithful to me, you shall be devoured by the sword. Now he's talking about those during Isaiah's time. They're going to be perished. He's going to bring people up against them, which is not uncommon. He says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now today, we understand the Lord may not bring an army against us. <laughs> he might. We just might not recognize it. But if, that not, if that's not the case, on the day of judgment, he will bring his son against us when we send before Christ. The Bible tells us, as the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us there in Ecclesiastes 12, they will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, right? That's why he says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's offer. For all sins will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what will happen? We will have our lives judged on things we have done, whether good or evil. Privately, publicly, all those things. The only way to avoid a bad judgment day is to prepare ourselves before that day arrives. That's what God is doing here in verses 19 and 20. Do what? Come back to him willingly and be obedient. And avoid verse 20. But they were not willing. That's why next we find limitation over over Jerusalem, limitation over, over sin. When we come back to God and we repent of our sins, is there a lamentation? Do we sometimes lament the things that we have done? I sure hope so. That's part of godly sorrow. We weep. Maybe we don't have to weep necessarily, but we lament. We are no doubt sorrowful that we have done what we have done against God. Look at verses 21 and following. Verse 21 we find here God laments the wicked change in Jerusalem. He says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It's full of justice. It was full of justice, past tense. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. You think God sees individuals sometimes as that same, in that same manner? Oh, they used to be faithful. They used to love me so deeply, so passionately, but now they have changed. Here he applies it to an entire group of people, doesn't he? Oh, how, how the faithful city has become a harlot. Oh, how sometimes individuals have followed God for so long, but over the process of time, they fall away. They become what? A rebel. Verse 20, right? If you refuse and rebel, 
He says it was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it. They were doing what was good. Again, past tense. But now, righteousness does not lodge in it, but only murderers, only sin. We find in verses 22 and 23 that their sin is called out. He says, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. What are they? They're selfish, wicked, dangerous people. Companions of thieves. Princes are rebellious. Everyone loves bribes. They follow after rewards. It means they just do things for money. Not what they should be. What about redemption? Well, redemption comes through purging, which you find here in verses 24 through 31. In verse 24, I want us to notice here, it says, Therefore the, therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, all I will rid myself of my adversaries. I will take vengeance on my enemies. That's a reference to those who are in sin. He's saying all those wicked people. And he says here, verse 24, all I will rid myself of my adversaries. That's are those individuals who are in rebellion to God. You don't want to hear that, do you? You don't want to hear the Lord saying, oh, I'll rid myself of you. Because that's what's going to happen. Now let's drop down for just a moment and look at verses 28 through 31. Because he's still talking about how sin has this price. How unfaithfulness has a price. He says, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired. And you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you, have, for you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf, leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. What is he talking about? Everything they desire is going to come to nothing. And those powerful, strong people in the worldly sense, he says they're going to burn like tinder. Today we call that kindling. What do you start fire with? You start with kindling, right? The small stuff. He says they're going to be the first ones to burn. Those strong, rebellious, wicked people. Well, let's back up because we're still talking about redemption, aren't we? What does he first do for Judah and Jerusalem? He purges out sin. Those who repent are purged of their wickedness. Looking, Going back to verse 25. He says, I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. I will take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as, a, as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. You notice there, afterward, after they are purged of sin. He says, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her, and her penitence with righteousness. Repentance with righteousness. And so what's going to happen? Those who repent are purged of their wickedness. Now, what does this mean for us today? Again, we want to remind ourselves that what is chapter 1 about? Removing the sin from among God's people, from among Jerusalem and Judah. Again, sin ruins everything. As we go back to the beginning of chapter 1, we find that sin ruins assemblies, 
Sin ruins families. Sin ruins individuals. And sin ruins a hope of heaven. It ruins all those things. It ruined their assemblies because he tells us he hates all their sacred assemblies, all their gatherings. He hated all that. Would it ruin their families? Yes, because sin doesn't do anything good. It rarely saves a sin one person or family. It spreads like, like a disease, like a cancer sometimes. It ruins families. It ruins individuals. And it ruins the hope of heaven. We saw that going back to chapter 20, uh, verses 21 through 23, how sin, again, ruins all that. Repentance and reformation of life is the only way. Putting sin away is one of the single greatest themes of the Bible. There's a lot of themes we find throughout the Bible, but putting away sin is one, one at the very top, obviously. Putting away sin. Reformation or change of lifestyle means coming to God in full obedience and complete dedication. Repentance and reformation of life is the only way to be pleasing to God. That means if we haven't obeyed the gospel, we have to start there. As we close today, I wanted to do something a little bit different. I want to put some questions for us to look at up here. Uh, just some things I want you to think about as we close this morning. How did God respond to hypocritical worship? And how did he respond to Jerusalem turning to sin? How did he respond? The text tells us, doesn't it? How did he respond to those things? And then will Christ respond any differently on the judgment day? If we are guilty of being having hypocritical worship, that is living life full of sin, we're not talking about making a mistake and repenting of it. We're talking about those who are living in rebellion and then still claiming to be a Christian when they come to worship God. Will Christ respond any differently on the judgment day? And what did God say was required for them to be pleased to him once again? What did God say was required? They had to, to do something, didn't they? They had to repent and willingly come back to him and obey. As we think about these things this morning, we think about Isaiah chapter 1 specifically. We think about the things that the Lord calls out concerning Jerusalem, concerning Judah. And we apply that on a personal level. Then we want to make sure that we are not guilty of those things. We may not be perfect, but when we fail, we can repent of those things before God. We confess those things to God so when we come together and worship God, there's nothing hypocritical. There's nothing phony. There's nothing fake. Only true, sincere worship of God being done in spirit and in truth. This morning, as you think about these things, we can help you in any way. We're glad to do so. That's going to be saying, sing the song that's been selected.